Do we have two microphone people or just the one? We usually run two during the ABF. You want to do a Colleen? Okay. We got a proxy. So you hover this side of the room, Steve, and Colleen will cover this aisle and we'll go. Questions? Oh, can I get that side? Your wife and mom are over there. I got <laughs> If my mother or my wife have a question, Colleen, please note that Steve has got dibs. Um, let me, I know, I, I know that one of the blanks at the end, we, with the communion Sunday, with the order reversed, we were strapped for time, and so I tried to move somewhat quickly. Let me give you one of the blanks that I know I missed. Three, three, three B3 and three B4. Objection, they need a sign to repent. Response, if they do not hear the scriptures, they will not be persuaded by signs. They do not hear the scriptures, they will not be persuaded by signs. Those are the blanks that I know I sped or skipped over. So, now, questions. Nope, Renee Lucia. Okay, maybe it's not so much a question as thank you. <laughs> it was, these are wonderful scriptures, so thank you for um, expounding on them. And what always surprises me and amazes me is that they did have that sign of someone being raised from the dead. And to this day, do they believe? Right. Well, in Luke's gospel, I had it in the notes, but again, for speed, we moved. Jesus did a notable miracle in chapter um, 11. He cast out a demon from a boy, and what did they just do? They just said, oh, he did it by Satan. I mean, they recognized a miracle was done. They didn't try to deny it. And then others just said, oh, give us more signs and more miracles. And that's when Jesus denounces them and says, it's a wicked generation that seeks a sign or a miracle. And Jesus turned the, uh, and multiplied the bread in John 6. They follow him to the other side of the lake, and the next day, and they say, teacher, what are you doing here? And he's, he, he says, you know, believe, what's the works of God? Believe in him who comes down. Okay, what sign will you give us? To which you'd imagine if it were me, I'd be like, you're the same guys from yesterday, right? <laughs> and then they're hint, hint, that bread thing. And so a faith that is created by signs, I think, would need to be perpetuated by signs. A, a, a faith that um, came about because of a miracle would continue to need miracles to feed it. That's what we see at least in John 6. Give us another one. Um, do, do that bread thing again. And, and so it's... it's there are a couple cases in the New Testament where it might appear like someone, God the Spirit, used a, a miracle to bring someone to faith. Nathaniel sitting under the tree when Jesus evidences supernatural knowledge of him. Uh, he says, and you, here's an Israelite, John 1, and here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel says, teacher, how do you know me? And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, uh, I saw you sitting before, before Philip came to you, I saw you under the tree. And then he believes. It's possible that, that that evidence of supernatural knowledge is part. But what we get again and again and again in Scripture is an emphasis on d demanding. Certainly, I won't believe till I see a sign is rebuked. That's certain. That sort of notification. Yes, I have the Bible, but I want something. That gets rebuked. Um, and in John's Gospel, turn turn to John two. Um, Verse 23 and through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And you think that's good. 
especially since chapter 1, verse 14 said, but to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them rights to become children of God, children born not of the flesh, nor of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so you'd expect, less than a chapter later, after John wrote one, um, sorry, not one fourteen, one twelve, and 13, You'd expect that, that formula is exact, they believed in his name, you'd expect him to say, and he gave them the rights to become children of God. But it says in chapter 2, verse 23, now the, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for, man, for he himself knew what was in man. And you keep reading, and you find out, that I really think this is a poorly done chapter division. I would, if it were me, I would end chapter 2 at verse 22. And then, because so clearly, verses 23 to 25 set to introduce Nicodemus. Because look what happens. Now there was a man, the Pharisees, and Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs. So Jesus was in Jerusalem, and many believed when they saw the signs he was doing. And here's a guy who believed, quote-unquote, because he saw some signs. And by the time you get to the end of the Nicodemus encounter, um, Jesus says to him in verse 10, lest it be clear, I mean, people will paint Nicodemus in such a um, sympathetic light. This poor man snuck out because he was afraid and he, he's got these seeds of faith. Jesus, t- Nicodemus will come to faith. He will come to faith. We see his arc in John's gospel. But Jesus leaves us in no uncertainty about the state of his heart here. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Is Nicodemus a man of faith here? No. He will become one. So while Jesus was in Jerusalem, many people believed, quote unquote, when they saw the signs, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. And then we have a perfect example of a man who saw some signs, came to some conclusions about Jesus, and yet at this moment is not a person of faith. Um, Personally, the, the, the ESV there in verse 11 tells you, there's a little footnote, um, that, that the yous are plural here. And so, not that we're studying John right now, but my understanding of this encounter is not that Nicodemus shows up at night because he doesn't want the Pharisees to find out. Rather, is that Nicodemus is showing up as he identifies himself as an ambassador for the Pharisees. The Pharisees don't want to publicly be seen endorsing Jesus yet. He's on an exploratory mission. We've seen exactly this in chapter 1 when they sent people to investigate what John the Baptist was up to and doing. So I, I see this as Nicodemus, we, the Pharisees, because then Jesus splits, splits to plurals, you all. So if I put the yous and go southern on you, verse 11, truly, we say what we, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you all do not receive our testimony. If I have told you all earthly things and you all do not believe, who's the you all? It's linking back to Nicodemus, we. He's speaking for a group and Jesus answers him as speaking for a group. So um, the Pharisees saw the signs Jesus did and they came to some conclusions about him. He must be from God. But they don't believe what Jesus says. They don't receive what he says. 
So anyway, but that's probably the, the, the starkest example of, of this in John's gospel. And then when they, the Pharisees discover that, that Lazarus is raised, that, yeah, go to John 11. I alluded to this in the message. Um, Um, look at verse 48. Well, 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What shall we do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Um, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, if you jump down a little bit, um, look at verse... 12, chapter 12, verse 10, well, 9 and 10. When the large crowds of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came out not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. So here's a notable miracle. Here is a man named Lazarus raised from the dead. Do they believe? No, kill him. It's got to be a bummer if you've already died once and you come back to life and you find out there's a hit out on you. But that's, I mean, so, so we see their response. So it's not though Jesus is just speaking hypothetically. And then Jesus himself is raised from the dead and, and witnessed to by, by over 500 at one place. And, and the Pharisees gathered a plot. That they're not unpersuaded. They tell the soldiers to make up a story. But they know what really happened. And they're not persuaded. But, but at the end of the day, the other clue, go back to Luke and here's why this is the case. We like to think that faith is simply a matter of intellectual assent and credulity. And what I mean by that is this. We, we think, if we think uncritically and unbiblically, what we tend to think is the reason people don't believe is simply a matter of credulity. That the claims the gospel makes are incredible claims, and so, because they're incredible, they lack that credibility. Um, it, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds miracles, people rising from the dead, inerrant books, all that stuff really stretches the realm of credulity. And so people, in a sincere, honest lack of credulity, simply say, look, that's just too much for me to believe in a way. And, and if that's the case, then all that is required is to make a, a compelling case, to, to mount an argument and, and build a case that overcomes objections. And then the assumption is that when we make a credible case, when the scales are tipped so there's enough evidence now to make this seem reasonable, then they'll believe. Here's the problem. Jesus has already told us, why, why don't people believe? Because they love sin. Because they love the other master. You can't serve God in money. Seeing a miracle isn't going to make you, is seeing a miracle going to make you stop loving money? Seeing a miracle going to grant you repentance? Is seeing a miracle going to make you start loving what you hate and hating what you love? No, of course not. One of the reasons why I stress that, that saving faith involves repentance, why, why it's more than simply believing something is true, is because again and again the Bible makes it clear 
Um, in John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light because they loved the darkness. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and does not come to the light. What stops people from coming to the light of Christ is that they hate the light because they love darkness. And seeing a miracle is going to do nothing to affect that. Go to, go to, it's in the notes. We didn't go there. Go to 2 Thessalonians 2. In other words, the fundamental reason people don't, don't believe in the gospel is moral, not um, credibility or, found, or cognitive. It's not, this is a tall tale, and we have not made a compelling case. It's fundamentally moral. I'll back this up. I mean, there's oodles of text to back this up, but, but 2 Thessalonians will suffice. Um, I just overshot it. Hold on. And there we go. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay? Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. So far, so good. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And we're back to that same two masters assumption. Why didn't they love the truth? Because it was an incredible claim. A sufficient case wasn't made. Enough evidence wasn't presented. No, they didn't believe the truth because they loved unrighteousness. They loved mammon, so they hated this other master. Why do the Pharisees hate Jesus? Because they're self-righteous. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to admit they were bad people. It's a moral reason that keeps people from believing the gospel. Um, and, and that's why, then, evidences will not prove decisive in conversions. Does that make sense? If it's a moral issue, if what you need is a change of heart, then seeing evidence will not affect that change of heart. Evidence will, I think, increase the faith of believers. I think for people who have faith, miracles, when I hear about archaeologists confirming the Bible, my faith is strengthened and increased. I have faith, and then I hear, oh, guess what? The the world just confirmed another biblical truth. For a long time, they said there are no Hittites because they couldn't find any um, examples of the Hittites, and they mocked the Bible for this mythical people, the Hittites. So then they discovered the Hittites. And so that's cool. And you, (laughs) you grin and you say, yeah. Um, and it increases faith. I don't think there's anyone who's now a Christian because of the Hittites. That, that's, that's the point. Qu- questions on that? I know, I know this. Yes, Bob. Oh, he wants, no, he doesn't want your mic, Steve. No. Uh, you're having said all that, and I 100% agree that uh, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word, and God, word of God, and without the word of God, you cannot be saved. It cannot also be, should be pointed out, that the signs and wonders were not willy-nilly. They were fulfillments of scripture itself. So um, that may well be why, to those that are believers, why believers are um, given more confidence by hearing different signs and wonders or seeing the Hittites existed and that type of thing. No, no, absolutely. In fact, go to Acts 2. Let's go to Acts 2. I want to enforce your points. And I agree with you 100%, Bob. Go to Acts 2. 
people, even when, even when signs and wonders were, were present all over the place in the early church, and I know there's some debate over what's going on, even when, let's just look at one example in Acts, where we know things are going on. They weren't the decisive factor in bringing people to faith. In Acts 2, they're waiting for the Lord, being obedient, on a rooftop, and all of a sudden, tongues of flames come down, and they began speaking in other languages, right? Um, verse 4, they're all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And, and people miss this. People think that the gift of languages is somehow used to communicate the gospel to other people. That is not, we don't see that ever happen once in the Bible. What this does is draw a crowd. The reason why I say that is one man in one language, Greek, his name's Peter, gets up and preaches one message and 3,000 get converted under one language, one speech, one man. What drew the crowd was everyone hearing in their own tongue, their own language, the, the glories of God being proclaimed. So, these, so the, what miracles do, or at least here in Acts, is they, they get people's, in here in this first instance, it gets people's attention. A crowd gathers at this unusual thing. Sure, like Moses saw a bush burning and not being burned up. That's odd. What's going on? And then they get drawn in. Verse 5, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Figria, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to the Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed and saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying they're filled with new wine. And then one man stands up. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Who's talking to them from here on out? Peter only. And it's Peter's sermon that begins here. and goes all the way through uh, verse uh, 39. And his call to repentance that converts 3,000 people is hearing and faith. So even, even, even when we've got recordings of, of, of supernatural events that we are absolutely certain they're real, they're not bringing people to faith. It's the message preached that's bringing people to faith. The one thing, the one reason why you might want to bring a Christian celebrity in is simply to draw a bigger crowd. I get that. You could fill up an auditorium with the right celebrity. But after that, they bring nothing to the table evangelistically that anyone else with the word of God doesn't bring. After, after that crowd is gathered, and go to, go to 1 Corinthians 3. And, and in the story with the rich man and Lazarus, the focus is on a huge miraculous sign. I also want to argue that, that skill and speaking well and being a good communicator adds nothing as well. Oratory ability. Um, I, think, I think we can also think that, man... No one presents the gospel like Billy Graham or whatever. And I want you to see what Paul says. There are factions at the church he planted in Corinth. And Paul, we know from the book of Acts, planted the church at Corinth. And now Apollos is the main teacher there. And there were factions. And if you look at, we'll start in chapter 1, verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people 
that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is this, that each of one says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And he goes down. Now, what starts out is multifactional. And by the way, this is not doctrinal divisions. If this was doctrinal divisions, then the I follow Christ group would be correct. And everyone else would be wrong. These are personality cults. And we'll see this really clearly in the next two chapters because Paul's going to pare away all the other names. He's going to narrow it down to, to him and Apollos. He's going to narrow down these divisions and use two case points, himself and Apollos. And so um, he starts that up because Apollos, we know from the book of Acts, is trained in Greek rhetoric and he's mighty in speech. He, 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 he is a great orator. And so Paul... Um, in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. You see how he's setting up the contrast even here. I don't speak eloquently, Paul says. And Christ doesn't care that I don't speak eloquently. I was sent to preach the gospel. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of his power. And he goes on, the word of the cross is folly. Pick up chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul freely admits he stutters, he stammers. Um, we know elsewhere he's not much to look at. He's not an impressive figure. And, and Apollos is, is, is mighty and trained in Greek rhetoric. So he moves forward, okay? Now, um, move ahead a little further to chapter 3. And we pick up the divisions again. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but people of flesh, as infants in the Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. For even now you are, yet, you are not yet ready, you're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, and you are not of the flesh behaving in this way, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. So we've narrowed the factions down to Paul and Apollos, which is why Paul has been for two chapters emphasizing, <laughs> I don't talk like Apollos does, not at all. And he's not going to diss Apollos for Paulus' eloquence. It's not that Apollos' eloquence is a hindrance. It's not important. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollos Watered. So understand the metaphor. Paul, by saying I planted, means I was the church planter. I, I, I came here and I preached the gospel. Planting is the evangelism. And watering is Apollo showing up to, to sprouts of faith and feeding them with the word. Two different acts of ministry. Apollo is, is tending and watering little saplings, little plants. And Apollos is planting. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We, we are mistaken if we think, I'm mistaken if I think my skill in communicating God's word makes people grow. You're mistaken if you think mine or someone else's ability to communicate makes God grow. Now, what is important is that communicate it accurately. If I, if I mishandle God's word and make it sound like it means something it doesn't mean, that's a problem. The best I can hope for is I get out of the way. I, I, I explain what it means rightly so you understand what God's saying and then I get out of the way and let the Word of God do what it, the Word of God does by the power of the Spirit of God. That, that's the best I can hope for. 
I, I can't trick myself into thinking, man, if I just find some powerful illustration, if I just find some memorable joke, then people will change. Uh-uh, God makes it grow. And whether I water like Apollos or like Paul, God makes things grow. This, this was made no more clear to me in my own life. Um, I'm just emphasizing this as well because we can beat up on you know, miracles don't make people believe. But eloquence in speech doesn't make people believe either. I just remember being very convicted by this when I used to attend Grace Community Church. Big, massive church. John MacArthur's a powerful, faithful speaker. He handles God's word accurately. But the size of that church, they've got a whole staff that handle God's word accurately. And I'd remember catching myself in the summer. MacArthur would usually take off six or seven weeks in the summer, work on a book, spend time with his family, speak at some conferences. And I catch myself checking, okay, who is preaching this week? Maybe I want to skip first service. Maybe we can sleep in a little bit and we'll show up to Sunday school. And I remember just getting convicted that I'm doing exactly what the Corinthians are doing when I was doing that. I had no complaint with any of the other elders at Grace. I had no concerns that they were handling God's word accurately. I think it would be a valid reason to not want to go hear someone. I don't think they teach well. Um, I don't think what they say is true. That would be a legitimate grounds to have a concern. Or if for whatever reason you can't understand them. I mean, Paul talks about clarity of speech in 1 Corinthians 14. If the trump sounds um, in an uncertain way, who can hear? And, and some people tell me to slow down. That is a very valid concern. <laughs> I need to be understandable. I need to speak articulately. Um, but beyond that, God makes things grow. And so I realized that in my own spirit, I was thinking, no, John MacArthur makes things grow. Not this other elder who's faithful. Who's handling God's word accurately? He just doesn't. Sound. And I was, I want Apollos. I don't want Paul. If, if Paul's showing up today, I'll stay home. If Apollos is showing up, I'll be there front row. That's the problem. And so we, there's, there's more than one way that we can stop putting our trust in the power of God's word. We can, we can run and want miracles and signs and experiences, and that's what we'll put our faith in. But we can just as equally run and put our faith in someone else's eloquence. I, I read MacArthur's books and commentaries. He is useful and valuable to me in so much as he helps me understand God's word. And so I care what his arguments are, and he's been proven very faithful in that. And a lot of other men have been as well. So it's not to say we just throw that out and, okay, then who needs that? The point is we mistake ourselves when we think the man does it. Um, We can do the same thing when we, you know, you may find this hard to believe. But if we had an evangelistic activity and we drew 3,000 people here, According to this parable, according to 1 Corinthians 3, there would be no difference of who comes to faith, whether Greg Sweet gives the gospel invitation, Billy Graham gives the gospel invitation, Joel Andrus gives the gospel invitation, one of our missionaries gives the gospel invitation. There will be no change in effect. Uh, assuming that all parties equally are understandable and articulate God's word and the gospel clearly, beyond that, God makes things grow. Greg Sweet, Jeremy Kidder, Josh Zimmerman doesn't make a difference. That's hard for us to believe. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul here says. Paul waters, Paulus, Paul plants, Apollos waters. God makes things grow. Sorry, Bob. That's my long, long, long way of saying amen. MacArthur has a book called The Heart to Believe. Yeah. And in it, he talks about the myth of influence, and he goes to 1 mm. Corinthians 1. And not only is it, uh, one of his points is not only should we, we don't need designer gospels, but that God has actually designed the gospel that he made right. to be moronic. Yeah. 
He actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah. That the Jews, it says, for since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So the gospel is a stumbling block and the gospel is foolishness. I think he quotes uh, um, Martin Lloyd-Jones as saying, if you've never been ashamed of the gospel, you don't know what the gospel is because it really is stupid. Yeah. I mean, imagine this, putting a serpent, bronze serpent up on a pole and telling people uh, if you get by the serpent, just look at the bronze serpent. Yeah. Uh, some people didn't do it because it's pretty darn stupid. And the same thing with uh, dealing with Christ is if we don't look to him for our salvation, which is really kind of stupid, the only thing that brings us to that is, is the Holy Spirit. makes us realize how intelligent it really is, but it's moronic in every other respect. No, absolutely. In that passage you quoted, you go back a verse, it pleased God. This is intentional. It's not accidental that the gospel message seems foolish. It pleased God, for since the world in wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God intentionally wants it to be foolish. So when we try, like, no, I know this sounds crazy. I mean, because what are we saying? We're saying that a, a carpenter in the Middle East 2,000 years ago is God incarnate. And because someone killed him and he rose again, you can be forgiven. Now, there's more to it than that, right? But, but that's part of it, and that, that he's coming again, and you can go to heaven. I mean, we, there's, and there's a book that somehow is accurate 2,000 years later. It's, it's absolutely accurate. These are our claims. They're, they're incredible. And we... Not, not that I want to make it, we make a mistake, we don't want to make it intentionally more incredible, but we also don't want to think, man, if you just understood all the explanations, then it would be okay. Like, no, there's a sense in which this is going to be a stumbling block. Absolutely. And if we try to give the gospel enough of a makeover that really, no, it's okay. Like, yeah, if people aren't stumbling over something, you're probably not preaching the gospel. If you preach the gospel and everyone in the room nods, and even those who disagree go, yeah, but that's cool, that makes sense, you're probably not preaching the gospel. There should be something that offends in there. Now, don't just go be a jerk. I'll make sure there's something that offends in there. <laughs> you just give me a chance. But, but yeah. And so when we find ourselves wanting to shy away from, and today, the doctrine of hell and God's wrath, we get embarrassed, we want to downplay that. And no, don't. The gospel will offend. It is going to be foolishness to those who don't believe. Now, don't make it super foolish by adding foolishness to it. Just, just handle it faithfully. The seed is good, to use Paul's analogy. Make sure you've got the seed undiluted, unmixed, and cast it. And God will make it grow. You know? Yes, Linda. Steve, looking for a mic, Steve. There we go. He's on it. Johnny on the spot. Oh. <laughs> okay, I don't know if you have time for this or not, because I didn't get to ask it Three last, minutes. Okay. last week either. But maybe okay. it, but it ties into this whole conversation today yeah. so yeah. so last week so starting in verse 16 so of Luke uh, 16? yes yes Luke 16, 16 16 16 okay we're okay back in Luke. so I know there was a lot of discussion last week about that mm -hmm. and I could be way off here but I'm looking and to me it seems like maybe he's saying um everyone is forcing his way into it could he be talking about 
like we're just saying that you got Apollos, you got, you know, so you got all these people who now this gospel is out there and they see that it's getting reaction. So now all these false teachers or whatever, other people are jumping on board trying to go preach their own version of it. And then he's coming back to verse 18, basically saying, look, this is the law from the beginning. This is what it is. And anyone else who's out there trying to change that is, you know, just wrong. Do you get what I'm... I get what you're saying. Okay. It's, it's possible. I think it less likely only because whatever this forcing or being urged in, when you take it after the passage, whatever that is, it's a new development since John. So the law and the prophets until John. Since then, starting at... John, this new thing, the kingdom of God is preached, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and people are forcing their way in or being urged in. So in Luke's gospel, my question would be, do we have evidence of other people since John rising up and trying to find a different path in? It seems like the Pharisees and what they're doing, they've been doing the whole time. They didn't start it at John. So if he's talking about the Pharisees and they were trying a way to sneak into the kingdom, I don't see anything the Pharisees are doing that changes when John shows up. Since John, they've been doing Acts. That's the part that I'm looking at. It could be. You're right. Given that one verse alone, that's possible. Trying to factor into the rest of the book, I would have to see what's this new thing that's happening. Now, if you take it the other way, the new thing that I'm seeing that's happening is Jesus is wide-reachingly calling everyone, Roman centurions, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, and urging, exhorting, warning, pleading them to come in. And they are responding. So that does seem to be new. That's, that's where I go. Grammatically, it could be what you say. At this point, you just got to argue the context of the book. Well, I'm thinking of maybe, so like in the other Gospels, when they talk about like the demon-possessed girl who mm. was working for the man, yeah. and he was making money off of what she was doing, but, she, you know, so he was right. forcing his way in kind of to be a part of and wanting to be a part of what they were doing. And there were other people who I said, we want to be a part of this, too, but for our own gain, not for. Right. And Paul's in prison gain. and people are preaching Christ to make him. It, it's that all could work. In other words, you're, you're presenting a possibility that is true. Right. And it's just like it's true people are being urged, and it's true that the people being urged are entering in. So any one of those three possibilities renders an acceptable answer. It's not wrong. The question is, he can't mean all three. Which one does he mean? And I'm starting with the starting premise that Luke, in writing to Theophilus, is going to give Theophilus enough stuff to understand. So my first place I'm looking for, does Luke give any suggestion of what this means? Now, everything you're saying, I need, I need, I need um, the, the, the epistles, I need the other gospels. In Luke, I've got Jesus saying, strive to enter through the narrow gate. I've got Jesus warning people, repent or you too will perish. I get this broad reaching, anyone who wants to come after me. He's appealing to everyone, and he's urging them to strenuously take this seriously and get in while the door is open because you don't want to get shut outside. So I tend to think, given Luke's context, that fits best, but context is going to answer it. And at the end of the day, it's not going to radically change we take Luke to mean it. So I think that's the best reading of it, the passive reading, the, in the footnote. Everyone, people are being urged to enter in simply because of where we've just been in the last few weeks in Luke, the last few chapters. It's what we've seen the most of. It's this urging of all sorts, all manner. The emphasis here would be everyone is urged, not just the good religious folks, but sinners and tax collectors and publicans and... And, and centurions, and you name it. But yeah, you're, I couldn't be dogmatic that you're wrong. What you're saying 
Certainly it doesn't yield untruth and is possible. So with that, we're out of time, folks. Next week. <laughs>